Chapter Rip Early the next morning, Benson Rockford unlocked the door of Daryl Fletcher's office at Gensum. It was after five in the morning, and the chance of bumping into someone was remote. This wasn't the first time he was in Daryl's office. Everyone knew they were close friends. However, something was nagging him about Daryl since the fire, and knowing he wasn't going to bump into his friend on the day of his vacation departure, it was time to put this feeling to rest. Benson unlocked the file cabinet and checked every folder. He smiled. Happy Daryl wasn't foolish enough to leave any sensitive materials in his office. Checking the desk, he also found nothing. This was easier than he originally thought. Benson then accessed the computer, entered Daryl's user ID and password, and waited impatiently for the computer to communicate with the company's LAN system. He then checked the files on the local hard drive and Daryl's personal network drive. He was disappointed in what he found. Idiot, he mumbled. He took a portable hard drive out of his briefcase and inserted it into computer's USB port. He highlighted the files to copy and waited as the program told him the estimated time for completing the job. 43 minutes, he said. Exasperated, he checked his watch. It was already nearly 6.30. This job was going to put him close to 8, and he definitely was going to run into Daryl's secretary soon, since she usually arrived before 8. Benson thought of a reason he could use to explain why he was in Daryl's office, then relaxed. He turned on the lights, relaxed in a leather desk chair, and watched the computer do its stuff. With nearly 10 minutes left in the file copying, Daryl's secretary opened the door and walked into the office. She was shocked to see Benson there so early in the morning, but he explained to her that Daryl wanted him to copy some files for him so he could work on them on his trip. Since his residence didn't have internet access, when she asked what trip, he told her to check either her voicemail or email. He also said that he'd take care of sending the files to Dorel. When she left, he saw that the program had five minutes left. Those were the longest minutes he could remember. Once they were finally copied, compressed, and encrypted, Benson erased all of the original files from the computer and the network drive. He also made sure he emptied the recycle bin on the computer before logging out and made a mental note to have IT delete any backups of Daryl's drive. Placing the hard drive inside his briefcase, he quickly locked all of the cabinets he had opened and left Daryl's office. As he emerged from the office with briefcase in hand, he immediately saw Agent C. Cole Lee talking to the secretary. He calmed himself before being noticed and greeted the FBI woman. Agent C. Cole Lee, Benson walked over to Brooke and introduced himself. I don't think I've had the pleasure. I'm Benson Rockford, CEO of Gensum Pharmaceuticals. Agent C. Cole, the FBI. Brooks said, at a loss for words. Um, Italian, right? First generation were far removed, he said, trying to put her on the defensive to distract her for the moment. What is he doing here? Thought Brooke. She was hoping to catch Fletcher off guard and grill him a little more to see what she could get out of him before hearing back from Martin. Coming in contact with the CEO was more than she expected. Mr. Rockford, that's Mr. Fletcher's office. Do you want to explain what you were doing in there? Asked Brooke. Why? I usually frequent Daryl's office. Why should that interest you? So, you usually visit his office when he's not around. She didn't know what else to say. It sounded very accusatory and amateurish and made her cringe when the words left her mouth. She had to find a way to quickly gather her wits. This was the man she had wanted to speak to the other day, and she had to make the best of this unexpected meeting. Despite the new revelation of Fletcher, 
possibly being Mr. Anonymous. That's right. Is there anything else? Asked Benson, carefully leading her into his trap. Excuse me? Benson sighed deeply. Look, I apologize for not meeting with you the other day, but I'm extremely busy. Was Mr. Fletcher helpful in answering all your questions? If not, then a follow-up meeting will have to wait until later. Mr. Fletcher left for vacation today and my schedule is, well, heavily booked. It's entirely unfortunate what happened at the storage facility, and please don't hesitate to send me a report on your findings. But as for now, good day. The effect of his words was exactly what he expected. Brooke didn't know how to respond. Benson quickly walked past her and made it to the door just as Brooke gathered her wits. Excuse me, Mr. Rockford, but the FBI may need to speak to Mr. Fletcher later, and in spite of him being on vacation and can't wait, can you give us information on how to contact him? She tried to ask cordially. The tone in her voice told Benson to be careful. I'll mention it to Darrell. Leave your phone number with his secretary, and if he cares to talk to you, then she'll contact you. Realizing she wasn't going to get anything else out of the CEO, Brooke glanced at the secretary and smiled. That's a good idea. I think I'll do just that. Brooke gave one of her patented smiles at Benson. Sorry to keep you, sir. Have a nice day. Benson slightly tilted his head and then left without a word. His heart threatened to jump from his chest as he waited for the elevator and eventually left the room. When the elevator closed, Brooke took a more serious tone with the secretary and eventually got more than a phone number. Fletcher's vacation home address. She quickly moved away from the desk and called the plainclothes agent waiting downstairs. She gave him Benson's description and ordered him to tail the CEO when he left the building. Moments later, when she was alone in her car, she called Keiko and quickly tried to update her on the events. It's too much of a coincidence that he decided to go on a trip right after I questioned him, said Brooke to Keiko. And to see Mr. Rockford in his office bright and early in the morning indicates some kind of collaboration between them. He's close friends with Fletcher, and I'm sure he's been in that office a lot. We have nothing. Oh, yes we do. Brooke interrupted Keiko. You should have seen how hard he was holding onto that briefcase. He probably had something from Fletcher's office in there. Yep, he probably did. And what right do we have to check it? Said Keiko. Brooke didn't know how to respond to that. Brooke, right now, we have no connection between these two guys and the fire at Iron Mountain. The only thing we know is their close friends and Fletcher may have been spooked by an FBI agent for whatever reason and looked to his friend to calm his nerves. The man could have been completely stressed and needed to take some time off, said Keiko. You don't really believe that, do you? Keiko laughed. Absolutely not. They're both hiding something and I don't want to spook them yet. We'll back off a bit to let them feel comfortable, gather the facts behind the scene, have them under surveillance, and jump when they make mistakes. You did the right thing by having Rockford tailed. Also, just don't tell Martin about that yet. He may burst an artery wondering how we went from investigating an act of arson to following the CEO of a major corporation. Berg nodded. I just hope I didn't make a mistake by letting him leave with that briefcase. I just have this sick feeling that we just missed something. She wondered if she should also mention to Keiko about Fletcher, possibly being Mr. Anonymous, but decided to update that little hunch of hers when she heard back from Martin. Maybe, said Keiko, but do we take that chance? If it's nothing, then we lose everything. We alert them that we're onto them, and that can have worse results. Don't worry, these guys aren't professionals. They'll slip up soon, you'll see. 
Several minutes later, Benson violently opened the door to his office, threw his briefcase on the floor, and then slammed his fist on the desk. He shouted to his secretary, ordering her to quickly get him a large cup of hazelnut coffee. Why was that agent there to talk to Daryl again, unless he gave them good enough reason to? That lady FBI agent didn't look intelligent enough to make that decision unless given a reason. Where's my coffee? He shouted from his office. Sitting down at his desk, he swung around in his chair and faced the window overlooking the multitude of Jensen buildings, his empire. He made this company what it was today, one of the strongest in the nation. No, the world. A multitude of blockbuster drugs were in the pipeline that would put the company's profits in the upper billions for the first time in its existence. A milestone for any corporation and a testament to himself. Well, it would have been impossible without the financial assistance of his so-called associates. But as long as they were happy with their little project, they left him alone to handle the ins and outs of his company. Presently, Iron Mountain was a significant distraction that could cause unpredictable damage if ever traced back to him. He expected the investigation. Daryl expected it. His associates expected it. But none of them expected it to come so close to home. Something inexplicably brought the FBI to their front door. Benson wondered if Daryl's nervousness prompted suspicion when he talked to the FBI agent. Research and development, he mumbled as he looked at one of the buildings. Manufacturing, administrative, and... Benson stared at the biotechnology building, one of the best when compared to any other pharmaceutical company. It was here the company's real strength came from. In this building, scientists were encouraged and rewarded to do what they loved to do. Research. From this basic start came starting ideas, novel techniques, and brilliant discoveries. Your coffee, sir. Startled, Benson turned around, looked at his coffee, and then at his secretary. Cancel all my meetings today, take messages from all, and I mean all phone calls and notify my wife that I'll be late getting home tonight due to work. Yes, sir, she paused. Will I be staying late tonight also? She asked. No, maybe some other time? She nodded and left the room. Benson smiled at the coffee and sipped it carefully. Darrell's too sloppy, he thought. He leaves invaluable information sitting in his mainframe and computer. He stupidly takes a meeting for his CEO and puts himself in direct contact with an FBI investigation and nearly crucified himself with his tense behavior. Something had to be done, but at the present time, he didn't know what to do other than sending Daryl away for a short time. Minutes later, he remembered the portable hard drive in his briefcase. What was he going to do with it? He didn't have to make a copy of Daryl's files, since he could easily delete it at all. Then he realized his true motive. He didn't really trust Darrell. The man was just too nervous and unpredictable at times. Even though Daryl was his closest friend, Benson knew them all too well. Daryl was hiding something and Benson wanted to see exactly what the man had on his files. Benson turned it on his computer and waited for it to boot up. Acquiring the portable hard drive, he accessed the files and started reading. Keiko closed her phone, her eyes, and took a deep breath. Brooke was doing an exceptional job, but she wished she were there to lend a hand. Unfortunately, as she realized that less and less of her attention was being devoted to the Iron Mountain fire, she tentatively relinquished more responsibility to Brooke. Keiko trusted her, but always had trouble in trusting unsupervised control to others. She took another sip of her English breakfast tea and glanced around the waiting room of the local hospital. It was rather late in the morning as she waited for the doctor's permission to further question Bartholomew Yancey. 
Mr. Yancey had a rather trying bout with the now neutralized poison in his system and a critical bout with heart failure. He was out of critical condition, being currently on an IV to rebuild his strength. Keiko waited impatiently for an opportunity to further question the cult leader, since the doctor informed her there would only be a small window for questioning. Hoping not to miss that window, she decided to wait at the hospital for the doctor's permission instead of possibly missing it. She took another sip when she noticed a familiar figure talking to one of the receptionists. When the receptionist pointed toward her, Keiko immediately recognized Pastor Everett. Good morning, Agent Carter, the pastor said as he approached. I see you're waiting for a chance to see Bart, may I sit? Keiko motioned for him to sit in the chair next to her. There's a good chance I might be able to ask Mr. Yancey a few more questions. There are still a few things I need cleared up, she said. Oh, I see. He paused. I was just hoping to visit Bart to see how he's doing. But the receptionist said, he's still under government jurisdiction, and I can only see him through your permission. Keiko stared at the pastor for a while and saw nothing but concern for a man responsible for the deaths of hundreds. Why, she asked, before catching the word from leaving her mouth. Pastor Everett looked at the floor before answering. I know what he did was a horrible thing, and many may find it hard to forgive him, but somehow, I have to help him realize where he went wrong. Someone has to guide him out of his darkness. And one of the others who are hurting by this man's actions, Pastor? Who's going to be there for them, she asked. I've been meeting with many of them since the incident, and I've been doing my best to guide them away from letting their pain turn into hate. There was much to this man she didn't understand. To care for the hurt and the inflictor of that pain at the same time was a unique and strange thing to do. It was almost like someone caring for the Holocaust survivors and Hitler at the same time. If he had survived, it was a difficult road to travel, and not many would be successful doing it. Keiko shook her head. She needed to focus on the task ahead, not some spiritual enlightenment for all. Pastor, she said, changing the subject. Yesterday you mentioned to me that Mr. Yancey considered the foundation of his cult um group to be a symbiotic relationship. Can you please elaborate? I just don't understand the connection. Since a symbiotic relationship is a beneficial relationship between two organisms that has positive ramifications for both. Pastor Everett looked up at the agent and smiled. And that's where my friend Bart got confused. Do you believe in God or do you put your faith in science? Sorry, I'm not a religious person. I base what I believe in what I can see and understand through physical evidence, backed by scientific research and logical reasoning, said Keiko. Good, then let's start with science so you can understand what ails Bart's mind. Of course, I'm not well-versed in the sciences, so please correct me when I'm wrong. Keiko nodded. She really wasn't sure where this was going to go, but any insight into Prophet Barabbas would be appreciated. In our digestive tracts, aren't there bacteria that are beneficial to us? He asked. Keiko nodded. The pastor continued. So in your terms, that is a symbiotic relationship. These bacteria provide and assist in digestion of food, so, they are beneficial to us. Keiko rubbed her chin. Well, technically, this gut flora you're talking about provides several important functions in the human body, such as fermenting unused energy substrates, assisting the immune system, and providing vitamins such as biotin and vitamin K, to name a few. Um, right, said Pastor Everett, hearing these attributes for gut flora for the first time. Anyway, in this symbiotic relationship between human and bacteria, are both aware of each other's existence. Keiko looked at the pastor curiously. Excuse me, 
I don't think I understand your question. Plain and simple, Agent Carter. Are both parties, human bacteria, are aware each other exist. Keiko looked at her watch, in her mind the conversation had just passed that invisible line of no longer being valid. She did not know where the pastor was going with this discussion, and really didn't see how it could help her with her investigation. As soon as she got permission from the doctor to question Yancey, she'd gracefully leave the pastor here to his logic. However, first, she'd answer the question the best she could. I'd, well, I assume we humans are aware of the bacteria, but they are not aware of us. In their state, they are using their environment to maintain their existence, which happens to be beneficial to us. So, no, it's not a mutual awareness. I'm quite confident that bacteria do not possess the intelligence to be aware of us. So, you're saying there are different types of beneficial, symbiotic relationships, where both may be aware of each other, and in some cases where they are not, he asked. Yes, there are many examples, but we don't need to go there. Please continue, said Keiko, impatiently. Ever heard of possession? asked the pastor. Keiko leaned back in her chair as she stared blankly at the pastor. Like in the movie when a girl was possessed with a, a demon? Yes, the exorcist. Ever saw the movie, he asked. Yeah, Keiko said, slowly. Now let's look at the movie The Exorcist in your terms, as a sort of symbiotic relationship. In your opinion, was this a beneficial relationship? Keiko glanced to each side, but no one seemed to be listening to their conversation. First of all, Pastor, I don't really believe in demonic possession, but to answer your question scientifically, no, this isn't a beneficial relationship. The thing possessing the girl was doing more harm than good. Pastor Everett nodded. I can give you facts and information showing you that such instances do occur, but that's for another time. The goal here is to have you understand the mind of Bart. Anyway, another question. Do you think both the girl and the demon possessing her were aware of each other's existence? Keiko sighed. According to the movie, the demon knew things about the girl and even others, and the girl was even aware of her possession. And before, you said bacteria don't have the intelligence to be aware of the humans they reside in. So in this case, the demon possessing the girl is exhibiting intelligence? Asked the pastor. Fine, yes it is, she said quickly. Now, where is all of this going? Agent Carter, this unfortunate situation with the children of Barabbas is a spiritual matter. It is not a scientific problem. I'm trying to bridge the two so you understand fully what's going on here. That's all. If all of this is uncomfortable to you, then we can talk about something else. Keiko didn't like when a conversation was completely alien to her and taking her for a ride she never experienced before. But if it was the only way to tap into the mind of Bartholomew Yancey, then she'd suffer her way through it, no matter how ridiculous it was. She took a deep breath. Please continue. Pastor Everett nodded. Now where was I? Oh yeah. We stated that the demon possessing the girl was an intelligent entity. Now going back to the bacteria. This cut floor resides in a specific location within us and nowhere else. It lives in a place that's beneficial to it and the human, but that's a physical location. In us, there is also a spiritual location where spiritual entities can reside within us. It is this location where the demon resided in the girl from that movie. Keiko nodded and motioned for the pastor to continue. It was this area Bart focused his belief on. He believed there was more to just heaven and hell, angels and demons, God and the devil. He believed there were other guiding spirits, entities, which would commune with him, guide him, 
and help him discover the truth about many things. Spiritually, he opened up a part of himself to receive the guidance of these spiritual beings. He embraced the symbiotic relationship he came to experience. I say symbiotic, because unlike the girl in that movie, his relationship was never physically damaging to him. No, just to the hundreds of others he convinced, Keiko interjected. Pastor Everett continued, This is nothing new. It can also be called spirit guides, something that goes back more than a millennium. Bart thought he was discovering a profound new way of interacting with the spirit realm by inviting them into a symbiotic relationship with him. But what he really was doing was opening up that part of himself to just about anything. It's almost like someone ingesting or inserting a particular bacterium to the gut flora region in place of the natural gut flora, thinking it would be more beneficial. That's ridiculous, said Keiko. Exactly. But unfortunately, Bart is a rather charismatic person, convincing others of his new way of interacting with the spiritual realm through symbiotic relationships. There is a desire in all of us to fill this part of ourselves with something. But that's a totally different conversation we can have later if you wish. But overall, that's where Bart is, and through his interactions with these spiritual beings, he was deluded and convinced to do something horrible. Now if you focus on the physical, then his relationship with these spiritual beings wasn't damaging, but I say it was harmful spiritually to him. Not a true symbiotic relationship if it causes harm one way or another, I guess, said Keiko. No, it isn't. Those types will always lead to no good. There's only one that will lead to a true relationship. Keiko held up her hand. She knew where the pastor was going to go next. Do you want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? Been there, didn't do that, don't need to go there again, she thought. Pastor Everett, thank you so much for your insights into Mr. Yancey. It will definitely help when I question him. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to make a phone call. By all means. Oh, and Agent Carter, if it's possible, can I be there when you talk to Bart? I won't interfere. I just want him to see that a friend's still close by. I fear he may be rather. Well, distressed over the fact he's still among the living when he regains consciousness. Keiko paused for a moment. I'll think about it. With sweat beads on his forehead, Benson repeatedly opened and closed his fist to try to maintain a level of control over his anger. Most of Daryl's files were company reports on specific projects, clinical trials, pharmacokinetic studies, and tons of raw data. Daryl was primarily a brilliant scientist who tried to keep on top of everything so he was well-versed to discuss, with authority, any project with his subordinates. However, he possessed the unfortunate trait of keeping electronic notes on nearly every subject. Darrell kept an electronic journal on nearly everything happening at the company and personally. One subject he innocently kept in his computer was a journal of his feelings on the Iron Mountain arson. Benson read how his friend was disturbed by being forced to be associated with an illegal act of arson. Benson read how his friend on the spur of the moment called the FBI and notified them while remaining anonymous of the fire at Iron Mountain being an act of arson. The way Daryl described it, there was no way the call could be traced back to him. Before Benson knew what he was doing, his phone was out of his pocket, and he was about to make a very secure phone call. He looked at the phone for a second, pausing. He knew what he had to do, but feared the consequences once it was done. An update was required from him despite the stupidity of his friend, he concluded. His finger flew across the numbers and he raised the phone slowly to his ear. Yes, said the all-too-familiar voice one after the first ring. 
I, I ran across Agent C. Coley again this morning. She was going to meet with Daryl again, but I sent him away for the time being. She got nothing out of me. I see, said Voice One. Well, also, I, um, found evidence that, well, they're all kind of. Anonymously called the FBI concerning the fire and may have inadvertently led them to look into the fire. Benson lowered his head. He had just sold out his closest friend. Ah, we were wondering if you would contact us. I'm glad to see you didn't disappoint us. For your information, we already knew about his little digression and have already taken action to make sure this will never happen again. Benson quickly looked at the phone. How did? That shouldn't concern you. You'll be contacted later on this matter. Benson placed the idle phone on his desk. His worst fears realized. He shouldn't been nicer to Daryl, since he'd most likely never see him again. Keiko finally got the nod from the doctor and was allowed to see Bart Yancey for a short period of time. She debated over whether she should allow the pastor to join her, but decided she wanted to crack at him without any religious influence. The doctor, on the other hand, had to be present to oversee his patient's well-being. Before she entered the room, Keiko had an inspired idea and gave the FBI agent outside the door a few instructions. Afterwards, she walked in, acknowledged the doctor standing next to Bart, activated her recorder, and got to work. Well, you're looking much better, she said to Bart. You gave us quite a scare some time ago. How do you feel? Bart slowly opened his heavy eyelids and gradually focused on Keiko. It took him a few seconds to remember who she was before he responded. Moving his lips several times before the words came out, he finally managed to grunt a few raspy words. Like yearly care, he said. Keiko nodded. True, but if you remember our previous conversation, I'm here to get some answers from you that I wasn't able to get before you were hospitalized. I'm here to get those answers now. Told you everything you needed to know, Bart said softly. Keiko took out her notepad and reviewed her notes from her last conversation with the man. Let's see. You said there's a terrible catastrophe coming to the earth, causing the death of millions. A. A man-made plague. And the only way to avoid this devastation was to release one's spirit from this existence. Bart nodded. Okay. Now can you please tell me how this information was imparted to you? Clarity returned to his eyes as Keiko saw the memory of his vision return to his mind. The sheer remembrance of it seemed to revitalize him. Shaking his head, he said, you couldn't begin to understand. It's beyond you. I disagree. Try me, said Keiko. No. So you don't think I have the openness to have the same spiritual symbiotic relationship you have? Am I really that far gone, Prophet Barabbas? Shock overtook Bart as a thought began to form in his mind. Is she the one to spread the word to the Gentiles, he wondered. You want to hear my vision? My vision of all to come, he asked. Keiko nodded. On one condition that you must repeat to anyone who may ask, my exact words of what I'm going to tell you. Agreed. I'll leave no word out, said Keiko. Bart breathed deeply, then started. Leaving nothing out, he carefully explained everything in his dream. From the disturbing actions of the entities, to the horrific yellow-black sores on plague-inflicted people, and to the ethereal-like smoke emanating from scientists to the entire world. He ended it by saying every living thing would cry out in pain for all eternity throughout the earth, and the only escape was to join his symbiotic spirits. Keiko rubbed her chin as she listened carefully. 
When he was finally finished, 15 minutes later, she glanced at the doctor and saw that the man was disturbed by what he had heard. Not so much by the details of the vision, but by whether he should place the man in the psychiatric ward. When she realized part was finished, she asked another question to cap the investigation. You told this same vision to your people, word for word, and then you mentioned, or can I say, ordered them to join their symbiotic spirits to avoid the mankind ending plague by killing themselves. Yes. Did you tell them how to end their lives? She asked. Yes. Okay, I think we're done here. I, but you must warn others about what's to come, shouted Bart. Everyone must know. They must make a choice. It's very important. Even though Bart Yanitsi told her the same exact message he had given to his flock, Keiko felt as though there still might be something he was holding on to. Maybe some suppressed information he blocked out, waiting for the right time to be triggered. She had neither the time nor the patience to draw it out of him and hoped her next move would prove fruitful over time. I will do what I can, she said to Bart, trying hard to sound very sincere. Mr. Yancey, this must be a trying time for you, and I just wanted you to know we'll do what we can to make this as pleasant as possible. Keiko looked at the doctor to stress the point. I'm going to allow you unlimited access to one person, as much as your doctor sees fit, that'll not impede your recovery of course. I hope you take this gesture in good faith. Bart closed his eyes. I don't know of any person you might know that can be so helpful, but thank you anyway. Keiko motioned for the FBI agent to get Bart's special guest. When he returned, he held the door open for Pastor James. He acknowledged both Keiko and the doctor before addressing his friend. Hi Bart, how's it going? Instantly recognizing the voice, Bart's eyes widened as he saw his old friend. Words didn't come to him immediately, but before leaving the room, Keiko saw how his eyes watered up. Once she confirmed with the FBI agent that the pastor agreed to her conditions, she left the hospital and made her way to her associates for an update. Benson Rockford stared at the portable hard drive containing Daryl's files and carefully placed it in his briefcase. He felt numb. Daryl never truly revealed how he felt about these projects. They've been close friends for years and always shared their thoughts with one another. Of course, Daryl was neurotic about many things, but Benson never imagined how deeply rooted it was. Daryl Fletcher and Benson Rockford's friendship survived nearly 20 years of peaks and valleys. They first met at a science poster session in San Francisco, where Daryl was the guest speaker, talking about several breakthroughs in proteome research. Benson was so intrigued he took Daryl out to dinner that night at a very expensive restaurant and established a correspondence between them. At that time, Daryl was a vice president of research at a minor pharmaceutical company, while Benson was just completing his first year at Gensum Pharmaceuticals. Their correspondence turned into friendship, despite their company's disapproval of talking with the competition. Family vacations were planned, formal dinners frequented at one another's houses, golf outings attended, and plans for the future fantasized. It was with no surprise Benson felt hurt when he read that Daryl really considered him an obsessive, maniacal predator, stopping at nothing to achieve his goals. Darrell was literally scared of Benson and didn't know how to get away from him. He feared for his life, the lives of his family, and his company. He went so far as to say he was seduced by the devil Benson and fooled into developing a relationship only so his ideas could be sucked from him. It was only years later that he realized his mistake. But it was too late, there was no way out. Benson had sunk his fangs into his neck and was slowly draining his life's blood. 
Benson turned and looked at the picture of him and Daryl on the far wall. He couldn't deny things had changed between them, but it wasn't he who had changed, it was Daryl. Daryl was becoming more and more afraid of his own shadow. He saw conspiracies in everything, distrusted a growing number of people, and deeply loathed the United States government's efforts to squeeze the profits of pharmaceutical companies. He nodded. It was Daryl who lost his nerve, not him. Daryl changed, not him. A loud knock on the door made Benson jump. He grabbed his chest and weakly answered, Who? Who is it? The door opened, revealing his secretary. She timidly apologized for disturbing him, but said there was a courier who had to deliver a package directly to him. Well, just tell him that you'll take all my deliveries. I'm busy. Sir, I'm so sorry, but it's labeled urgent, which requires only you to receive it. And, well, he? He told me he wasn't leaving without seeing you. Benson sighed. If he looks dangerous, then lock my door on the way out and call security, he said, believing it was all in her mind. But I. Look, he said, raising his voice, just see to it, all right? Defeated, she turned around, but stopped right at the door's entrance when the courier decided to walk into the office. He was over six feet tall, well-dressed, carried a briefcase, and with lifeless eyes, looked at Benson with detest. Benson immediately feared for his life. Who was this man? What did he want? The man smirked as he viewed the fat, wealthy CEO beginning to sweat. He opened his briefcase, placed a package in front of Benson, and leaned close to his ear. Benson was frozen solid in his seat as he felt the man's stinging, hot breath on his ear. A present from Sheol, you better use it. And you know what I mean. The man said coldly as he then turned, smiled at the secretary, and left without another word. She looked at Benson and then the package, wondering whether to call security. Benson shook his head. It's all right, get back to work. I was, I forgot about this. I, I was expecting this. After she left, he slowly opened the package and found a satellite phone. What the? On the phone's display was a number. He pressed the send button and listened to the phone dial out. When it connected, he heard a series of sounds as if another connection was being established. Benson Rockford said voice one. This is your new phone. It's encrypted and safer than your other one. Use it from now on when talking to us. Not knowing how to respond, he allowed the voice to continue. The FBI now has good evidence to confirm that Mr. Fletcher knew about the arson. If they follow procedure, you'll soon be trailed and your phone's tapped. The FBI agents working this case won't learn anything if you don't slip up. You know the rewards and benefits that'll come your way, but if you fail to keep this project from prying ears, then, while the consequences may not be pleasant, keep this phone well-charged and with you at all times. It is the only way to contact you without the FBI listening. Also, to handle Mr. Fletcher, when you originally called about your friend, you put into motion certain events that will permanently eliminate him from the equation. He was under your jurisdiction, so it's only fair your action will initiate the kill call. Benson listened as the call was terminated. His hands started to shake as he stared at the phone. After a quick flight, with his private jet secured in a hangar and a smooth limousine ride to their vacation home, Mr. and Mrs. Fletcher dropped their bags in the bedroom and had the local help prepare them a quick lunch. After preparing lunch, the local help took her old yet reliable car out to the market to fully stock the house with food, since she was caught off guard by the sudden arrival of the owners. She told them she'd be back in a couple of hours and left. Darrell put on his swimming trunks and a muscle shirt 
and strolled out to his private portion of the beach alone. His wife was still fuming about being dragged out on such short notice, but as the beauty of the beach calmed her, she began to accept the impromptu exodus. However, she'd let Durrell suffer a little longer. Maybe he'd start letting her know of his plans ahead of time. The beach was the therapy Durrell needed to take his mind off things. The environment had a tranquilizing effect as the tempered breeze from the ocean gently brushed against his face, and the soothing sounds of the light blue waves rushed onto the near-white sand. Maybe later he'd go snorkeling, but for now, he sat on the sand and watched the waves. An occasional speedboat or yacht slowly passed by his field of vision. He played with the idea of taking his boat out for a while, by himself of course. Tomorrow would be a better time since he needed to give his wife proper time to vent. Lying on his back, he stared at the deep blue sky and couldn't help but think of what he had left behind in New Jersey. He surely didn't miss the questions from the FBI or Benson's smug attitude, but he did miss the daily routine of the job. His mind flowed back to the call he had made to the FBI. He had felt out of control and could have said so much more. But when he realized what he'd done, he hung up quickly and prayed that nothing would come of it. However, when that female agent started questioning him, he knew he was in trouble. He hoped Benson didn't find out about the call. He had no idea what his unpredictable friend would do. So, as he lay on the beach, he contemplated what he should do. Daryl Fletcher's thoughts were so distant, he didn't notice as the hours flew by. He also failed to see the dirty white van pull up to his beautiful home and a band of local thugs force their way in, resulting in his wife being bound and gagged. After the van was put in the garage, the local maid returned unexpectedly from the market minutes later and was killed without hesitation. When Daryl finally returned, he too was attacked and restrained. Satisfied that no other unexpected visits would occur during their occupation, the thugs looted the house of all valuable possessions and placed them into the van. However, that was only the first stage of their plan since they were ordered to torment the couple before leaving and so they spent the night. Bound and badly treated, the Fletchers found their lives hanging by a thread. Sleep never came since they were repeatedly punched and slapped throughout the night. The next day, just before the sun started to peek over the horizon, the Fletchers were forced to drink a foul concoction, causing them to lose consciousness within minutes. The men then unbound the couple, laid them on their bed, cut the gas pipe in the basement, and lit several candles in the living room. They quickly dumped the maid's body into the van to be disposed of later and took off before the impending explosion. The night of the Fletcher's assault, Benson Rockford sat quietly in his office, staring out the window overlooking the various Gensum pharmaceutical buildings. Only a few lights were left on in the buildings as Benson observed an occasional body moving back and forth in the distance. He reasoned it was the night cleanup crew performing their repetitious, labor-intensive jobs. His secretary had left hours ago locking the outside door to his waiting room and dimming the lights. Reclining in his chair, he looked out the window, focusing on really nothing at all. His mind wandered aimlessly to so many things, he found it difficult to focus on any one thought. He was in shutdown mode. Benson wanted to get up, go home, and call it a night. But his body refused to move. In his right hand, he continued to hold the satellite phone given to him earlier in the day. Its touch continually reminded him he wasn't truly the master of his fate. He had to answer to another, and that other hell of all the cards. He really didn't wield the power he thought he had. Where once he knew what tomorrow would bring, now it was a mystery. The only thing he wanted was for the FBI to go away 
and is live to return to normal. The satellite phone vibrated. Hello, Benson answered, after clearing his throat. What are you doing? asked voice one. Benson closed his eyes. Why me? He thought. I'm in my office, he managed to say. Do you normally stay this late? I don't know. Yes, sometimes I do. Silence. Rockford, you must act as though nothing has changed in your life. You've been milking all day. You have to be Benson Rockford. Don't bury your head in the ground. Benson looked around his office nervously. You can see me, he asked. No. The distorted voice lied. Go home, Rockford. Get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow's another day. And don't forget to be careful of what you say and do. This should all blow over in a couple of days if you play it right. Okay. Yeah, and he answered, unconvinced. Benson took a deep breath after the call terminated, lifted his heavy frame from his chair, gathered his things, and slowly left the room. He eventually left Jen some pharmaceuticals in his newly bugged and traceable car. 45 minutes later, an FBI agent secretly made his way into Benson's office and started inspecting files, memos, and everything else in his file cabinet and desk. The agent turned on Benson's computer, attached a device to the USB port, and copied everything on the local hard drive. The agent carefully checked to make sure everything was in proper order before leaving, not realizing the person behind the distorted voice on Benson's satellite phone was watching his every move. This same person also watched another FBI agent perform the same actions in Fletcher's office and wondered what other chaotic variables they'd have to put up with before they were ready to strike.